Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we're just going to read verses 17 through 20. Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much uh, that you have given us your word, you have given us your law that we could look into. And we pray this morning that um, it would be no different, that God, that as, we, that as we come before you today, that you would speak to us, Lord, not, not just to, to teach us new things and to increase our knowledge, but Lord, to work in us that, that we might set our minds upon your word. Uh, Lord, that you would make us holy, that you would sanctify us, that you would make us like Jesus, our older brother. It is in your name that we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we've been looking at uh, the topic of sanctification and what it means to be devoted to God. And uh, we have just a couple more weeks left in this mini-series that we're doing. But uh, So I just sort of want to look backwards and see where we've been and what we've looked at. And the, the, if you recall, our first week we looked at the foundation of sanctification. And that, that, that foundation of our sanctification, according to 1 Peter 1, is uh, God. It's His character, His, His purpose for us. It is His grace, it is work in our lives. You see, God's purpose is that His people are sanctified. And so if you are here today and you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I don't care how intense the battle is sometimes, how much you struggle with mortifying the sin that is in your life, you will be sanctified. That is God's will in Christ Jesus. But we also looked at the spheres of sanctification in Romans 12, 1 and 2, and, and how the Word of God transforms our minds. But God doesn't just change us Internally, it's not just our minds, but He transforms our minds in order to transform our outer actions and our behaviors. It affects our whole body, all of us. And so God is seeking to sanctify us completely, both inside and out. But then, of course, He doesn't leave us to, to do that ourselves. We do participate in our sanctification. We don't just sit back and say, okay, God, when you get done sanctifying me, let me know. That's not how it works. We very much are involved in that. But he gives us power and dynamic power uh, by which we are sanctified. And that lies in our union and our daily communion with Jesus Christ, as we saw in Galatians 2.20 and Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. You see, we have died to the reign of sin, and sin no longer has dominion over us. 
And we have been raised in newness of life in Christ. And the resurrected Christ dwells in us. And the power of the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us in order to transform us into His likeness. And I hope, if nothing else, that you have walked away with that realizing those aren't just words. Those are realities that are at work in the life of every believer of Jesus Christ. And, and what good news, as Paul talks about our salvation by grace and, and what he's doing is not only saving us to take away our sins, but to make us like Jesus Christ. Now, when the Apostle Paul uh, taught these things, in, in some contexts in which he did, sometimes it raised questions uh, that people would have. And the question sort of went along these lines. If our salvation, if our justification of us coming to faith in Jesus Christ and our sanctification of us being made over into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ, is by grace and is through the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling us, then whatever happened to the significant role which the law of God played in the Old Testament? What's the role of the Old Testament law? Now, if you had asked a believer in the Old Testament what was the way of sanctification, that person, of course, would have uh, turned your attention to the teaching of God's law. As a matter of fact, he might have even taken you to Psalm 1, and he says, oh, you want to know what the blessed life is? You want to know what the holy life is? He said, the life of the man whose mind and meditation is set upon the law of God day and night, and who walks in the precepts of the law of God. That's where sanctification, that's where spiritual maturity comes. And, and so, as I said earlier, one of the accusations that was often brought against the Apostle Paul was, because of his teaching of salvation by grace, is um, they people thought that he was rejecting the law of God, that he was totally doing away with the law of God. And some even said his gospel had no place for the law of God. Of course, Paul argues against that in the book of Romans, amongst other places, that said instead of the gospel abolishing God's law, it actually establishes God's law. Now, we don't have the, the time for me to, to walk you through all the texts to show you that, um, but Paul is not the only one uh, that addresses this. Also in the context of Jesus' teaching as well. In Jesus' teaching about the transformation of life by grace into the kingdom of God. As Jesus is teaching about uh, coming to know God as our Heavenly Father. There appeared to be questions that people had, that his contemporaries had, about is Jesus doing away with the law? Is, is Jesus saying that the law has no place in the life of the believer. Now, if you look at, at Matthew chapter 5, it's the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12, sort of in Jesus' opening summary statement on the Sermon on the Mount, his, his introduction, he speaks of this transformed life, of, of what is characteristic of the person who is part of the kingdom of God. And, and notice that he mentions nothing about the law. And that would have caught the attention, I'm sure, of, of many Jews. 
But it is this very question that Jesus addresses just a few verses later in the text that I read today in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. And, and it's in these verses that he brings to the surface three fundamental points that help us to see the place and the role of the law of God in the life of the Christian believer. And especially in the role of holiness and sanctification in our lives. Now, this is a, a terribly important topic. There's probably no greater question for the New Testament Christian than how does the law of God fit into the New Testament teaching about the gospel? And, and if you don't believe me, just go visit different churches and you'll see that there's a lot of confusion about the law of God. John Newton, that great hymn writer, said uh, this. He said, at the bottom of almost every spiritual mistake that Christians make. Okay, can anybody relate to this? At, at the bottom of almost every spiritual mistake that Christians make lies a misunderstanding of the role of the law of God in the life of the Christian believer. Have you ever thought about that? But that's where oftentimes the, the mistakes lie. So, so this is a very uh, important topic. And so let's look at these principles that Jesus sets forth as we answer this question, what is the place of God's law in the life of the believer? And the first thing that we see is the, the permanent importance of the law of God. The permanent importance of the law of God. Now, what Jesus does here in, in Matthew 5, 17 through 20, is he talks about the law of God, um, both from a positive and a negative aspect. You know, if you're a parent or an aunt and uncle, and you're teaching your children or your nieces or your nephews, you, you probably are teaching them the negative and the positive aspects of whatever it is that you're trying to, to teach them. And Jesus does the same thing here. Look at verse 17. He, Jesus starts out in a negative way and he says, don't think that I have come to abolish the law. And then he states it in a positive way. I have come to fulfill it. And then verse 18, in the negative sense, not the smallest letter of the least stroke of the pen will disappear from it. But then in a positive way, he says, every part of the law will be fulfilled and accomplished. And then in verse 19, negatively, anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But positively, he says, whoever does and teaches these laws will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then he gives a conclusion in verse 20. I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so underlying, the, the underlying theme in each one of these statements that Jesus gives in verses 17 through 20 is the principle of the permanent importance of the law of God, that, that, that it's important. Now, why is God's law so important? Well, I would suggest to you because of a couple of reasons. One, because of the nature of the law of God but also because of the reason why God gave the law in the first place in the Old Testament. Let me look first of all at the nature of the law. The nature of God's law is, is a kind of, uh, like a transcript, like a written record of the character of God. Um, the law of God is a revelation of God's will and God's desire in the way in which people ought to live, okay? So he's laying that out. 
he, he is saying to his people, I have redeemed you, and this is now how I want you to live. But in laying that out, he's also revealing something of himself, revealing something of his character, of his will, and of his desire. And as much as it is the law is a reflection of God's will, it is inevitably a reflection of his character. And that's true of us, is it not? As those of us who are made in his image, that we will do certain things as a result of the character that we have. If you want to know what a person's character is like, look at the things that they desire, the things that they want, and you can see something of their character. And so as God reveals what he wants for us, he in essence is revealing his own character. And so the law of God is a written out series of hints that teaches us about the character of God, the God we are to know and to love and, and to worship. And, and if that's true, then of course there must be a sense in which the law of God has a permanent importance in the life of the Christian. But also we need to look at the reason why God gave us the law. You see, the law was given to show what it meant to live as image bearers of God. You know, God was, was saying in essence to his people, I have redeemed you. I have brought you out of bondage, out of the, the land of Egypt. And, and I have redeemed you and, and therefore I want you to be holy. Just like he did with Adam and Eve when he placed them in the garden. And, and as you read the Old Testament scriptures, particularly in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, and how God gave the law to his people in Exodus 20, you see that he did so in negative form. He, most of the commands are, thou shalt not, right? Thou shalt not. But he was seeking to communicate what God had originally willed for Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden that he had given them only in a positive way. Um, let me try to explain what I mean by that. If, if you look back at Genesis chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, probably 5, 2 as well, uh, you'll see uh, something that's very interesting, that every failure in the lives of Adam and Eve or their children, right, are addressed by one of the commandments in Exodus 20. If, if you want to check me out, you can do that this afternoon. Go back and read those opening chapters of Genesis, and you'll see that they correlate with the, the Ten Commandments. And it becomes clear that what God is doing on Mount Sinai is giving to his people who have a soiled and a marred image in negative terms, right? Because they have sinned, they're sinners against God. And so he gives these commands in, in a negative way as a description of what he intended them to be. But implied in that is also the positive of what he wants them to be. And so when God says, um, you shall not bear false witness, he is simply stating that in negative terms, but what he intended for his people is also to be truthful. Uh, he wanted them to be marked by honesty, to have integrity in their dealings with each other. Likewise, when he says, do not commit adultery, you know, obviously he was speaking into a world in which marriage relationships had been fragmented, right? There was divorce, there was running rampant, even amongst God's people. 
And so woven in this prohibition is the implication that God created us to live in harmony. So he wasn't just saying don't commit adultery. He was saying have mutual encouragement for one another, faithfulness, joy, uh, that we should cherish and nurture the relationships that we have. And, and that this pattern is enshrined in each of the Ten Commandments. And so every one of them reflects uh, not only the prohibition that God gave in the Old Testament law, the Ten Commandments, but His original purpose for mankind in His unfallen condition. And it, if, if, you, if I can help you maybe understand that better, if you notice as we go through the creeds and the confession in the church, you notice that, uh, uh, I haven't looked at every creed that's ever been written, but I would say most, have some section on the law of God. Because they see the importance of the law of God in the life of the believer. But as it gets to the Ten Commandments and it works, the creator confession works through it, oftentimes there's sort of this formula that gives the commandment and then the next question is, what is required in this commandment? And the second thing is, what is forbidden in this commandment? And that's both the positive and the negative. It's what God's original intention is, what was required, but then also what we must do because we are sinners. And so, what is forbidden? I hope that makes sense. But uh, the law has a permanent validity because it is tied to the character of God and because it also tells what it means to be made in the image of God. And brothers and sisters, we are still called to live out of that image. So in this way, the law of God was given in order to have a permanent importance or significance in the lives of God's people. The second thing that we see is the present fulfillment of God's law. Look at verses 17 and 18. Verses 17 and 18. Jesus says, don't think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And, and what Jesus is saying is what, what he's come to do is to fulfill not only the prophets, but also the law. Now, if we had been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew, by the time we get to chapter 5, we would have already seen many ways in which Jesus Christ fulfilled the Old Testament law. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think for, for most Christians, if you say, you know, how did Christ fulfill the Word of God, the Old Testament, we would think in terms of the prophecies that were given uh, about him, and we would think of that. But Jesus says he also came to fulfill or to bring out the fullness of the law of God. Now, how does he do that? Well, let me suggest a number of ways that he does that. First, he fulfills the law of God in his deeds or his actions or his life. Uh, Galatians says that Jesus was born. He was born of a woman. He was born under the law. And so he came into the world that in his life he might demonstrate what the law of God looks like when it's obeyed by human beings. 
Yes, Jesus was fully God, but he was fully man as well. And so if you ever wondered what the law of God looked like, perfectly lived out, Jesus did that. He came into the world to be everything that Adam and Eve were created to be, but that they failed to be. And so what we have here in Jesus is not someone who was distant from the law in, in some ways. Jesus didn't do everything he could to, to get away from the law, but someone in whom the whole of God's law is lived out perfectly and obeyed flawlessly. Now, I think it's interesting that sometimes when uh, someone lives uh, according to the Word of God and keeps God's commandments, oftentimes people around them will call them legalists. And I think one of the reasons why that can be the case, maybe not the only reason, but one of the reasons is because we sort of live in an antinomian culture, right? We sort of want to do what we want to do. We don't want someone telling us what to do. You know, we don't mind doing what God or someone else tells us to do if we want to do it. But when it goes against our grain, we can very much bristle against that. And so sometimes when we see someone living according to God's word or God's law, we can then look at them, and maybe because we're convicted by their life, we call them legalists. But the appropriate biblical response, I think, to this is to say that it never crossed my mind to think of Jesus as a legalist. How many here think of Jesus as a legalist? And yet he kept God's law perfectly. As a matter of fact, it, it seems that Jesus lived the, the fullest and, and the freest of life. He wasn't living as a legalist like the Pharisees. Jesus says he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So if one wants to see the beauty of the full expression of God's character in a life lived in obedience to the law, then they would look to Jesus. Not to Moses, not to Adam, not to Isaiah, not to Jeremiah, not to Peter, because they all crumbled under the law. But Jesus did not. He lived that perfectly. And so, if, if you want to sort of tie it back to Psalm 1, Jesus is the man in Psalm 1. He is the man who meditates on the law of God day and night. He is the one who flourishes like a tree by the rivers of water. The second thing we see in terms of how Jesus fulfilled the law was in his doctrine or in his teachings that, that he did. Jesus shows in his teachings the depth of the penetration of the law in the life of the believer. You know, Jesus is, is speaking to crowds. He's speaking to hundreds, I don't know, maybe thousands of disciples of his as he's giving this sermon on the, sermon on the Mount. But there's also mixed in with them Pharisees, those who were uh, very confident in their ability to keep the law of God. And Jesus wanted them to understand the law of God as God intense and originally intended it to, to be. And so in verses 21 through 48, and we're not going to take the time to read through those, but you can sort of glance through those. You're familiar with those sections of Scripture. You, it shows in them the deep and the penetrating significance of the law of God. You see, Jesus shows how it deals, how the law deals with our inner inward thoughts. 
and not merely just our outward actions. And so the Pharisees, who were very confident in how they kept the law externally, were shown, oh, but look at the intentions of your heart. Look at your desires. Look at your thought life. You have so violated the law of God. And so Jesus is fulfilling the law in that he is coming to the commandments of God and he brings out God's original intent in giving these commands. And when you see God's intent for giving the law, you see it in an almost infinitely more penetrating way, probably than even Moses did at the time that he gave the law. The third thing we see is, is that Jesus fulfills the law of God in his death. And this is probably the most common way that people think of Christ fulfilling his law. And it's important for us to grasp. You see, when God gave the law to Moses, there were commandments that were given. And we, we see those in the ten words of the ten commandments in Exodus 20. But there were also laws that were given on how the Jews ought to organize their society. Okay, And then there were laws that were given uh, that spoke about ceremonies and sacrifices that they were to bring. But they were sort of seen as a whole in the sense that everything in the life of the Jew was ruled by the law of God. And so there was a sense in which there was sort of a wholeness to all of this law, and it was referred to as the law. But for a Jew who would have had spiritual insight, spiritual maturity, they would have seen that the law of God that he had given had several dimensions to it. Uh, one of the ways in which they may have noticed this was that there's only one part of the law that was placed in the Ark of the Covenant. And that was the Decalogue. It was the Ten Commandments. The civil law was not placed in there. The ceremonial law was not placed in there, but just the moral law. And it was there because it was the revelation of what God wanted mankind to be. But since God wanted mankind to reflect his character by keeping his law and, and we failed to do so in order for man to stay in relationship with God. God needed to give them the ceremonial law to, to explain to them the, the laws and the rules of, of the sacrifices to provide a way of salvation and forgiveness. Uh, so when they failed to keep God's commands then they can still live in a relationship with him. Of course, here again, any astute Jew would have realized that if you have to give the sacrifices every day, most likely this is not taking my sins away, right? Uh, there has to be a greater sacrifice that comes, as the book of Hebrews talks about. And so uh, you have the moral law, you have the ceremonial law, but you also have the civil law. And that is those laws which tell God's people how they are to live in community with each other as a nation. But it's also the laws that set them apart from the other nations as well. That, they, that the nations could see that these people were special. That they had, that they were God's people. And, and that was the case until the true sacrifice, Jesus Christ, came. And, and he brought people from every tongue and tribe and nation into his kingdom. And so we see when Christ came... We see those three dimensions of the law more clearly. We see the moral law that it continues as it has a place in our lives, as it expresses the character of God and, and what he wants for us as his people in terms of how we are to live. But then also that the ceremonial law was 
was finished. It was fulfilled uh, because everything for which it stood had been fulfilled in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10. Look at Hebrews 10 uh, verse 12. You know, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice, not a daily sacrifice, not a monthly sacrifice, just one sacrifice, a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So there's no need for another uh, sacrifice. Uh, so what basically that means is that the whole ceremonial system sort of collapses. It's not needed anymore because Christ has fulfilled that. Um, I guess you could say this probably in a great illustration. I heard a preacher use this illustration. He says, it's like a ladder. It helps you to get where you need to get. Okay? But we know that once you get up on the roof, you need the ladder to get down. But forget that part. <laughs> Just imagine that you need the ladder to get on the roof and that's good enough. And once you're up there, you can take the ladder away, right? And, and so it's like that with the ceremonial law. And in, in some ways, it's sort of like that with the civil law, too, as well. Although there are there is much that we can learn from the Old Testament civil laws for our contemporary society. There's the general equity or the principles of the law that could be applicable to our society as well. And so these civil laws were meant to keep God's people together until Christ came. And now that he has come, the purpose is no longer a national purpose to have one people from one nation, but rather an international focus where there is one people in terms of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the nations that God is calling the people to himself. And then the fourth way that Christ fulfills the law is, is uh, why he gave the Holy Spirit to us. If you look at Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, uh, verses 3 and 4, Paul is talking and he, he said what the law could not do in terms of making us holy, it could not do because of the weakness of our flesh. In other words, Paul is saying the problem is not with the law of God. The problem is with our flesh, our weakness. So he says what the law could not do because of my flesh, God has done through his son. And then he says in verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now, if you remember back in the book of Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah gives this great vision of the new covenant that would be made in Jesus Christ. And you remember that part of that new covenant is, is that God would give his spirit to believers. But then also that the law of God would be written on their hearts. And so Jesus fulfills the law of God in his disciples by writing it by his Holy Spirit in their hearts. And you see, that's the difference between a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and someone who's just being religious. For someone who is just religious, the law of God for a religious person is a yoke on his shoulders that's crushing him to death. It, it's a sense in which God's rules are a weight of things that I have to keep in order to be made right with God. And the harder 
that I try, the more that I fail. And so, you know, as uh, I don't even remember what movie, they said, oh great, now I have guilt. You know, that's how we can feel sometimes. If we're trying to, to keep the law according to our own religious efforts, we have nothing but guilt from the law. But for the Christian, the law of God is like wings that enable the Christian to fly. The law gives direction. The law gives freedom in, in how we are to live as believers. And we delight in it because Christ has done that for us. And so those are the ways that Christ fulfills the law in us. Now, then finally, then, what is the believer's relationship to the law of God? And this, I have to be very brief. Uh, first, in, in light of all this, we can begin to see the difference that the new covenant makes for us as believers. The moral law hasn't changed. It still shows us how God's image bearers are meant to live. You know, not only how Adam and Eve were to live, how God's people in the desert were to live, but even as Christians uh, in the church today, how we are to live. But there is a difference for us as New Testament Christians. Now we receive the law from the hands of the one who fulfilled it for us and has given us the Holy Spirit to fulfill it in us. So there's, there's a difference. We've been given it from Christ who fulfilled it, and then now it gives us the ability through his Holy Spirit to keep it. Look, look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 19. Uh, Jesus says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And what Jesus says, that, that our reaction to the law is an indication of our response to his kingdom. It's a response to his rule over our lives and also the measure of how we'll be regarded in the kingdom, if we are great or we are least. You, you see, what happens is this, that uh, the spirit of Jesus writes the law in the hearts of those who belong to him and, and the Spirit of Christ is in us, and the Word of God is in us, and they are in total harmony with one another. And so the antithesis that you hear about in the church today in America, about law versus grace or law versus love, is, is just sort of incomprehensible, you know, at least biblically speaking, because, you know, it just doesn't, doesn't make sense. I mean, Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, right? If you love Jesus, how will you show that love? Jesus says, you will keep my commandments. There's no antithesis there. there there's no conflict there between love and law. And so the work of the the Spirit conforms us to Jesus Christ by writing the law of God in our hearts and giving us the energy to obey it. And so herein lies the beautiful harmony between God's law and love. You see, what Jesus indicates, especially in John's Gospel, is that the Spirit of God is given to us to energize us to live for God's glory. If you just sort of want to summarize it in the words 
of the shorter catechism, right? That we are to live for God's glory. But those who are energized to live for God's glory and love need direction in which to channel that energy. Um, the law of God comes to the Christian not in its naked power to destroy us, as sometimes we think about the religious person who's trying to keep the law to somehow earn favor with God, but uh, in the hands of him who has died under its condemnation and given us his spirit so that the law of God no longer threatens us with death, but has become for us through the power of the Holy Spirit an instrument to direct us in the way that we are to live our lives. In other words, if you want to put it very simply, the law becomes the railroad tracks by which we drive. It directs us where we are to go. It tells us, as Christians, now that we've been set free, now that we've been redeemed, this is how you get to live. And we don't have to sit down and figure that out and say, how, what, what's that supposed to look like? God's given us his law to show us that. I think it's interesting. I was reading Sinclair Ferguson on this, and, and he made this comment. He said, interestingly enough, he said, it's virtually only in the 20th century and in the 21st century that Christians have found it necessary to write books about God's guidance. I never realized that. Now, I didn't proof check that, so maybe he's wrong. I don't know. But he said, for the most part, um, it, only Christians in the 20th centuries, only recently, have needed to write books about God's guidance. Previous generations did not, by and large, doesn't mean they never did, but by and large, they didn't need literature to discover the will of God because they had taken God's law with the help of the Holy Spirit and applied it to most of life's situations. And so they knew God's will. They knew that as they kept the law of God, they were, they were fulfilling His will. Brothers and sisters, as Christians, we need to capture, recapture that reality. We need to, to cherish the law of God, not, not in some uh, distorted way of trying to earn God's favor, but in the way of living in the freedom of the newness of life that we have in Jesus Christ. That we might be that locomotive that, that chugs down the track in the power of the Holy Spirit to glorify our God. Amen? Let's bow our heads this morning. and Let's just meditate, think about, maybe silently pray to the Lord in, in response to the word that you've heard this morning. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you so much uh, for your salvation that you have given to us. But one of the things that's just struck me as I've been studying your word these last number of weeks is just the completeness and the fullness of the salvation that you have given to us. That oftentimes, I think, as Americans, when we think of salvation, we have sort of this anemic view of, of what that entails. But there is a richness and there is a fullness. And we thank you, God, 
that you are still at work in a mighty and powerful way in our lives. And I pray, oh God, that we would rest in you, that we would trust in you, that we would delight in your law to know that you love us so much that you have even said, uh, you know, I've, I've not only uh, given you the, uh, the ability and the power of the Holy Spirit to, to put to death sin and to live in newness of life, but this is what that newness of life looks like. I've given you tracks to guide and direct you. So please lead us, Lord, as your people. May we honor you not only individually as families, but also as a church, God. May the things that we do be yours. And I pray, Lord, for any that don't know you, that don't know this joy of this salvation, that they might bend their knee and yield to you, Lord, that they might have joy in Christ. It is in your name we pray these things. Amen.